So Father, we come to you this morning, Lord, and we confess to you that we have nothing good to give you apart from what has been given to us from your son, Jesus. That is not because of our merit, not because of our good works, not because of anything that we have done that we get to boldly stand before you. We come to you because we know that we have been covered by the blood of your son, Jesus. It's not because of us, it's because of him. That we can stand confidently before you today, that we can call you Father. You have called us your sons and your daughters, and we rejoice in this truth. So fathers, we bring ourselves now under the authority of your word. We ask that we would humbly open our hearts to you. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts to know. Would you now, even in this moment, break down walls of pride that would prevent us from hearing what we need to hear today? Would you blot out from our minds every superficial distraction that would keep us from hearing your voice through your word as you speak to us today? So Holy Spirit, we yield to you. Father, sanctify your church. Edify your name. Edify us. Glorify your name and sanctify us in the truth of your word today. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And as you find your seats, <clears throat> excuse me, if you're not there already, I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bible. Matthew chapter seven is where we'll be again together this morning, looking at verses 21 to 23 is the passage that uh, Matt read for us just a few moments ago. And if you're here with us today uh, for the very first time and you're our guest, my name's Taylor Burgess and I serve here across as lead pastor and we're honored to have you worshiping here with us. And just so you can kind of be caught up to speed, for the last several months, our church family has been walking verse by verse through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this is the most famous words of Jesus, Matthew chapters five through seven. And so we've been in here really since last summer, and Lord willing, we're gonna be wrapping this up together next week. So uh, Matthew 7, 21 to 23, pick up this morning where we left off last week with the words of Jesus. Um, 15 years ago, the spring of 2008, I was serving in the National Guard, and I spent a few months in uh, Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri for some training. And the week that I was supposed to be traveling to Fort Leonard Wood, there was a really bad snowstorm in the Midwest. And um, so I was supposed to fly from Knoxville to Chicago to St. Louis, but because of the storm, my whole flight path got diverted, and, and, and the whole trip got delayed by several hours. And so I was supposed to originally arrive and, and check in around 5 p.m., but didn't land in St. Louis until really late. And there were several others, about a dozen others, who were kind of in the same situation that I was, and so uh, we checked into the USO and caught the last bus that night out to Fort Leonard Wood, and we didn't get to base almost two o'clock in the morning, and, and so by the time the bus pulls up to the reception battalion, they really weren't expecting anybody else for the rest of the night. Um, they thought that they had seen um, the last trainees coming in um, for, uh, for the week, and so um, they're just kind of scrambling, trying to figure out where it is we're supposed to go. We, we'd all been through basic training, advanced training, and so we were just there for specialization school, so we'd, we'd kind of been through this to an extent before, but, but as they're checking us in, they said, well, everybody just, just get out your orders. And so we pull out our orders, and we show them where we're supposed to be, and then they organize us in groups based on our orders so that they could get us to our respective companies for training. 
And, and so uh, early in the morning, about 3.30, 3.45, they just went ahead and drove us on to our, our training companies, and we bang on the door, and the NCO's on duty, and he wakes up and comes in, and he's like, who are you guys? And so we, we tell him who we are and where we've come from, and he's like, well, you know, everybody's gonna be awake in 15 minutes, so just go upstairs, go ahead and get ready for the day. And so we come back downstairs, 4.30 in the morning, and we're standing outside in formation, and our first sergeant calls, uh, he's doing the head count, he's got the attendance roster, he's doing the head count for the day. And of course, he goes through the whole company and he gets to the end of this and he just asks the question, is there anyone whose name I did not call? And of course, the few of us who had come in just about 45 minutes earlier, our names weren't on this roster. So uh, the formation falls out and he pulls us off to the side and he gets our names and he looks at our orders and then he looks at his roster and he goes into his office and he checks his system and he talks to the company commander. They do all this and they come outside just to let us know, you don't belong here. This isn't where you're supposed to be. And, and, and as many of you are, are very, very well aware, painfully aware, when you are but a lowly private, uh, when your first sergeant says you're wrong, you're wrong even if you're absolutely right. And, and so they send us you know, back up to the reception battalion and we run through this gauntlet for a couple of days just so they could send us right back to where we were because we were in fact in the right place. And it wasn't just frustrating because we had to go through all this chaos and confusion for, for a couple of days. It was frustrating because in our minds, we really had everything we thought we were supposed to have. You know, we showed up in uniform. We have all of our equipment. We're ready for training. We had people at the reception battalion saying, you're going to the right place, who took us down there. We received a welcome on the front end, seemed like we were in the right place. We had orders that said, this is where you're supposed to be. But because the highest authority in that location told us we were in the wrong place, we were in the wrong place. And when we open up Matthew chapter 7, we look at verses 21 through 23. Church, these are maybe the most sobering verses in the entire Bible. These three verses are the three verses of Scripture that church people in particular can least afford to miss. Because what it shows us in this passage is that there are many who are living under the impression that they're true followers of Jesus Christ who are going to come before him on the day of judgment, fully expecting to be granted access to the kingdom, only to be told, you don't belong here. They'll think that they have everything that they need. I made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, and I was very sincere about that profession. I'm going to pull out a long list of good works. I went to church, and I gave generously, maybe even participated in missions. Some might have had someone tell them, you're headed to the right place. It could have been a pastor. It could have been a mentor. It could have been a youth pastor, a camp counselor, a friend. But on that day, the highest of all authorities is going to look at them and say, you don't belong here. And we spent six months in the Sermon on the Mount now, and I just want to say at the very front this morning, if you've tuned out everything up to this point, this is the one you cannot afford to miss. Because here Jesus warns us that it is possible to make an orthodox profession of faith, and it's even possible to have many good works that seem to substantiate and verify that profession of faith, only to learn on the last day that we were never known by Jesus Christ. So this is what Jesus warns us of in Matthew 7. This is the truth that we're going to work through together today. We cannot confuse an outward profession of faith in Christ with the genuine possession of faith in Christ. Just because we profess faith does not mean that we possess faith. It does not matter what we do in the name of Jesus if Jesus does not know our name. So just a few weeks ago before Christmas, we saw the false path. 
And then last week, we saw the false prophets who were leading people down the false path. And today, we see the fruits of the false path and the false prophets, which is the false profession of faith. So once again, from Matthew 7, I'm going to read for us verse 21. Jesus says here, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So what Jesus shows us first in this passage this morning is that the kingdom of heaven will be opened to those who do the Father's will. Now, if we go back to verse 13, just just where we were a few weeks ago, we go back to verse 13, we're reminded by Jesus there are two possible paths that we can take. There's two possible ways we can go. There's the hard way through the narrow gate that leads to life, and then there's the easy way through the wide gate that leads to death. Jesus says that there are few who will find the narrow gate, and there's many who are going to enter through the wide gate. And then last week, we saw that there's always going to be false prophets who are leading people away from the path of the narrow gate. And if there's false prophets leading people across a false path, then what naturally follows is that there are going to be false professions of faith. According to Jesus, there are many who are deceived into believing they're true believers when, in fact, they haven't truly believed. He says it here, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. In Jewish culture, the double repetition of a name, that this was a gesture of great sincerity, a double repetition of a name. This was language of great affection. And, it, and when it's used throughout Scripture, it's a pretty solid predictor that something of very serious consequence is about to be said. The Lord himself frequently uses this double repetition all throughout the Bible. The Lord calls out Abraham, Abraham, and spared his son Isaac in Genesis 22. He calls out Jacob, Jacob, when he sends him to Egypt in Genesis 46. He called out Moses, Moses, through the burning bush in Exodus 3. When the prophet Samuel was sleeping as a young boy, the Lord called out Samuel, Samuel in the middle of the night. As Elijah was taken up into heaven in a chariot of fire, his protege Elisha calls out my father, my father in 2 Kings 2. When Martha was too busy to sit down at the feet of Jesus, he addresses her with tenderness and affection, Martha, Martha. When Jesus predicted Peter's denial, he addressed him with the same tenderness and affection and concern, Simon, Simon. And then the next day, as he hung out on the cross, as he was strewn out on the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, when he was forsaken by the Father. So this is the warning from Jesus in Matthew 7. That these are words of great sincerity, that this is a gesture of great affection to, to repeat a word and say it not just once, but twice. Their outward expression seemed to indicate that they really loved the Lord, that they were very serious about the profession of faith that they, that they made. But as we're going to see in a moment, that's not actually the case, no matter how it's seen. Last week, we saw that false prophets, Jesus says, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. Their their true identity is disguised, but we can still know them by their fruits. Good trees produce good fruit. Bad trees produce bad fruit. And the bad fruit of the false prophet is the false conversion. It's the false profession of faith. And listen to me this morning, church. This is Satan's craftiest work. This is his best work. It's deceiving people into believing that they're truly saved when, in fact, they're really not. Convincing people they are on the narrow path that leads to life when, in fact, they're actually on the wide path that leads to death. It's his favorite game. And as we saw last week through the false prophets, we'll see what what Satan will often do is he'll actually use Scripture to get you on the wrong path. He'll he'll use scripture to give you a a false assurance of where you actually are. So so you ask, well, what do you mean by this? Well, listen to what Paul says in Romans 10.9. This is frequently quoted. 
Romans 10, 9, some of Paul's most famous words, he says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And then he goes on just a few verses later, Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he carries this out even more. This is 1 Corinthians 12, 3. He says, therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So so follow with me here for a second. According to Paul, if you call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. And those who do call on the name of the Lord are only doing that through the enabling of the Holy Spirit. So, so, So what do we do with this? Because I mean, at first glance, it looks like there's a contradiction here. Paul says, if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And yet Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So, so what, what, do we, what do we do with this this morning? Let, let's take a closer look here. Go back to Matthew 7, 21. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, with this great sincerity, great language of affection, not everyone who does this will enter the kingdom of heaven. But pay attention but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Please do not miss this. Do not miss this. Do not miss this. Because verse 21 is not just about who doesn't get in. Verse 21 shows us who does get in. It shows us who it is for. It's for those who do the will of the Father who's in heaven. So so listen, this is the question every single one of us would be absolutely insane not to ask. If Jesus says that the kingdom will be open to those who do the Father's will, then the question every person in this room should be asking is, then what is the Father's will? Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but the one who does the will of the Father who's in heaven. This absolutely begs the question, what is the will of the Father? Don't miss this this morning. Because the point of Matthew 7.21 is not that you can't know. The point of Matthew 7.21 is that you can know. It's that you can have confidence. You can have certainty. Jesus tells us who the kingdom is for, and it's for those who do the Father's will. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2, 4, that God desires for all to be saved. Not all will be saved, but God desires this. And in his gracious generosity, he's made known his will so that we can have confidence in these things. Listen to the words of Jesus from John chapter 6. This is the best news in all the Bible, and it answers this question of what is the Father's will. Jesus gives us the answer, John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Listen, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Everybody say all. All All means all. All the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Everybody say never. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And listen, here's where he answers the question. What is the will of the Father in heaven? Jesus tells us, he gives us two answers here. And this is the will of him who sent me. This is his will, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. So pay attention, verse 40, for this is the will of the Father. This is our answer to Matthew 7, 21. This is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
So what is the will of the Father? Two things Jesus shows us here. The will of the Father, first, is for you to look to the Son and believe. That's his will. That is his will. Because you belong to Jesus. Jesus says, all that the Father has given to me will come to me. And because the Father first has given you to the Son, you can be confident that when you look on the Son, you will come to him in belief, and he'll never cast you out. This is the will of the Father. Listen, I want to start the firestorm, uh, several centuries of debate here around Calvinism and Arminianism and everything else. I just want to make it really, really simple for us this morning. Some of us need to get our theology in order. We need to get the process of this in the right way. You are not a Christian because you first called on Christ. You are a Christian because he first called on you. Salvation is of the Lord. This is really a question of who is responsible for salvation. And if you and I are responsible for it, we're in trouble. But these things are in his hands. Listen, it would not matter that I cried out, Lord, Lord, if he had not first cried out, Taylor, Taylor. And it's from the basis of this confidence that we come to him. The Father's will is for us to look to his son and believe. Um, Charles Spurgeon, uh, if you've not heard Spurgeon, welcome to Cross Community. You'll hear his name a dozen times this year, at least. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, 19th century Baptist preacher from London, He was born on June 19th, 1834, but just over a week ago, uh, January 6th, marked 173 years since he was born again as a believer in Jesus Christ. And, you know, Spurgeon is known to us a century and a half later as the Prince of Preachers. Um, His sermons, his books, his legacy have long outlived him. They've impacted millions of Christians across several generations. And while Spurgeon is very, very well known, who's not as well known is the person who led him to faith in Christ. And his story of his conversion really just speaks to the power and the simplicity of the gospel. On January 6, 1850, Charles Spurgeon was 15 years old, and he woke up one Sunday morning with what he described as a despondent sense of brokenness and an awareness of his need for God. So he decided to go to church, and uh, he was on his way to church one Sunday morning, but there was a heavy snowstorm, and so it sent him down a side street, and he just kind of stumbled into this small, uh, primitive Methodist chapel, and uh, was located on Artillery Street, and because of the storm, the regular pastor wasn't able to attend, so a totally unprepared uh, layman got up to the pulpit to deliver a message that day, and the text he pointed to that day was Isaiah 45, 22. And this is how it reads in the old King James. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there's no one else. And here's how Spurgeon recounted his conversion experience. I put this in your notes this morning, his story. It's so good. He says, he had not much to say, thank God, for that compelled him to keep on repeating his text. And there was nothing needed by me at any rate except his text. Then stopping, he pointed to where I was sitting under the gallery, and he said, that young man there looks very miserable. I promise I won't do that today. And he shouted, as I think only a primitive Methodist can, look, look, young man, look now. And then I had this vision, not a vision to my eyes, but to my heart. I saw what a Savior Christ was. Now, I can never tell you how it was, but I no sooner saw whom I was to believe, then I also understood what it was to believe, and I did believe in one moment. And as the snow fell on my road home from the little house of prayer, I thought every snowflake talked with me and told me of the pardon I had found, for I was white as the driven snow through the grace of God. It is the Father's will for you to look to Jesus and be saved. 
It is his will for you to look to Jesus and be saved. All who belong to Jesus will come to him. This is the confidence that we have. Those that the Father has given to the Son will come to him. All who belong to Jesus will come to him. And when you come to him, the confidence you have is that he will never cast you out. He'll never cast us out. This is the Father's will, and it's only those who do the Father's will and know this will who will enter the kingdom of heaven. But you know, that that still leaves us with the question that we have to answer before we can be absolutely certain of saving faith. If it's the Father's will for us to look at Jesus, the next question we have to ask is, then what is the evidence? How can I know that I've truly looked at Jesus? How can I know that I've, I've truly looked to the Son? And, and I think initially we might be tempted to say, well, well there will be works. If the evidence that I've really looked to him, that I've really changed, is that my, my profession of faith will be accompanied by all of these good works. But Jesus shows us in verses 22 and 23, it's still not quite that easy. This is the warning from Jesus in verse 22. He says, on that day, many, everybody say many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works? Everybody say works. Do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So the kingdom of heaven will be open to those who do the Father's will. Second, Jesus shows us this morning, the kingdom of heaven will be denied to those who trust in their own works. It's the second time in 10 verses that we've seen the word many. You go back to verse 13, Jesus said the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who find it are what? They're many. Many followed false prophets down the false path, which leads to a false profession of faith. So what naturally follows is that there will be many on the day of judgment who are utterly perplexed about the fact that they're being denied access to the kingdom. And what's their argument? When they stand before him on the judgment day, what do they point to to try to justify their position before him? They point to their works. But what is their response? Lord, Lord, there it is again. Like, we really mean this, that, that, that language of genuine sincerity and affection for him. Lord, Lord, did we do many mighty works in your name? Did we prophesy in your name, preach the word in your name? Did we, we cast out demons in your name, perform all these miracles in your name? What do they do? They, they read their resume. That's their plan. Look at everything that I've done. And, and listen, it's pretty impressive, right? That's an impressive resume. How, how many of us can regularly say, like, hey, yes, I'm faithfully preaching, prophesying the word of God to whoever wants to hear how many of us have cast out any demons recently? Performing any miracles? Like, we see all these incredible things. I mean, if we're being honest, their resume is probably stronger than most of ours, and yet somehow it's not enough. It's not enough to save them. And, and, and listen, this is how, once again, Satan might even use the word of God to deceive us into believing we've truly been converted when we haven't. Okay, just think about what James says in James chapter 2. James is abundantly clear that our profession of faith has to be accompanied by good works. Otherwise, it's a dead faith. He says this in James 2.14. He asks, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And so he says it here plainly. So faith by itself, if it does not have works, it is dead. Look, listen, this is what's so deceptive about Matthew chapter 7, this crowd. The crowd in Matthew 7 appeared to have 
a very genuine profession of faith. I really meant this. Great sincerity. And they appeared to have the righteous works that accompanied their faith. They prophesied. They cast out demons. They did mighty works. And listen, they did all of it in the name of Jesus. So so what's the problem? Because we look at this, and it's like they had the profession of faith, and and they were practicing their faith. What what is the problem? I want to make this really, really simple for us this morning. This is the clearest distinction between someone who is a true convert and someone who is a false convert. True converts are looking to the Son, and false converts are still looking to themselves. They're looking to the sincerity of their profession. No, I repeated that prayer. I raised my hand. I walked that aisle. I cried a lot at youth camp. I threw a stick in the fire, dang it. I meant business. I I really, really meant it. I prayed that prayer, and I really, really meant it. And their confidence is just in that profession of faith. Or again, they've got the works. Man, I, I go to church every Sunday, and I read my Bible, and I pray, and I give, and I share the gospel, and sometimes I go on mission trips. Look at all this. And, and this is what we're still pointing to. I made the profession of faith, and I meant it, and I've got works that accompany it. This should be enough, but that's not the true profession of faith. What, what is not going to fly on the day of judgment is to stand before the Lord and say, look at me. We had to have looked to the Son. Who are we giving credit to in that moment? We don't stand before the Lord and say, me, me, me. We stand before him and say, him, him, him. It's only on the basis of what Christ has done for us that we can truly be saved. And if you are still trusting in yourself and not in the Son, it's evidence that we don't truly belong to him. Listen, make no mistake here this morning. Genuine saving faith will absolutely lead to good works, but no sincerity of profession, no amount of good works is enough for you to purchase genuine saving faith. What it really comes down to is where are you still placing your confidence? Is you, at your heart of hearts, I mean, just at the, the most base foundation of your soul, are you, do you believe that you're truly saved because of what you're doing, or do you believe you're truly saved because of what Christ has done for you? Where is your confidence? And on another occasion, when he was retelling his conversion story, Spurgeon elaborated a little bit more on the sermon that was preached by the layman at the Primitive Methodist Chapel that day. And this is the story. He says, he began thus, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look, now that does not take a great deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It, it is just look. Well, a man not need to go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man not, may not be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But this is what the text says. And then it says, look unto me. I, he said in broad Essex, many of ye are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look, I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me. Look to me. And when he had got about that length and managed to spin out 10 minutes, he was at the length of his tether. Now, this layman might have been unprepared in his sermon, and his delivery that day might have been unpolished, but his proclamation of the gospel was spot on. You are not saved by looking to yourself. You are saved by looking to the Son. Who are you looking to? 
Only those who do the will of the Father will enter the kingdom of heaven, and the ones who do the will of the Father are those who have looked to the Son. So we look to Christ. Listen to his warning today. Many of you are looking to yourselves, and I just fear this for some of you. Like, that's where your confidence is right now, that you prayed a prayer and you really meant it. Or you've got some, some accompanying works to go with your profession of faith. You're still trusting in yourself. And repentance of sin doesn't just mean repentance from, from doing the things that God's word tells us not to do. Repentance of sin means that we are renouncing our self-sufficiency. It means that we have renounced our ability. There's nothing within us that we could draw from to read to the Lord on the judgment day to say, this is why I belong here. At your core, at the bottom of your soul, like what is the foundation of your profession of faith built on? Is it what you're doing for him or is it what he's done for you? And this passage really provides for us today two false assurances of salvation that we can be really guilty of misplacing our confidence in if we're not careful. And so I want to look at these really briefly here for a few moments. Two false assurances of salvation that, that Matthew 7 warns us of. The first false assurance is the empty profession of religious creeds. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Again, this is, this is a sound profession. This is great sincerity. This is great affection. And so the warning here is you can be using affectionate, endearing language to express your devotion to the Lord. Listen, maybe you can perfectly regurgitate the gospel formula. I was dead in my sins, but God, in his kindness, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to perfectly live the life that I could never live to take my place in death, to go to the cross that I deserved as a substitutionary sacrifice for, for sin. It rose again from the grave three days later. Because of all of this, I can now freely call on his name. I can be saved through faith and repentance. Maybe you can perfectly regurgitate the whole gospel formula. Maybe you can recite all the creeds. You can recite all the catechisms. You, you can recite all the classic confessions. Who, who in this room is a Sunday school graduate? You're like, I've been there. I've done it. Maybe we can do every one of these things. Maybe you did repeat a prayer at some crusade. Maybe you walked an aisle. Maybe you raised your hand and you filled out a card. Maybe you were even baptized and your name is on a church membership roster. The warning from Jesus here is you can do all of these things and still completely miss it. If your confidence is in those things. Maybe you can express your devotion to Jesus in endearing, affectionate language. But if your trust is in these things, if your trust is in your sincerity, if your trust is in your actions, your trust is still in the wrong place. Now, beyond this, many claim to make a genuine profession of faith. They'll say they've trusted Christ, that they really meant it, but then continue to live lives that persist in sin. And, and listen, I hope you'll hear my heart on this this morning. No matter what you claim to believe, no matter what you claim to have done, what profession of faith that you've made, if after that profession of faith, if you've continued to live your life in open, unrepentant sin and rebellion against the word of God, then what we did early on was meaningless. Now, on the authority of the word of God, no matter how sincere we thought that profession was, and listen, I did student ministry for 12 years, and so I saw this play out so much. You know, it's that last night at camp, and it's super emotional, and, and kids respond, and, and then, man, man, 10 years later, none of them are walking with Jesus living in rebellion against his word, and you sit down and kind of talk about it, and then, and then ask him, well, where are you at in your faith? Well, you know, I'm not really where I'm supposed to be, but you know, the point back to that night at youth camp, I did that and I really meant it, that their confidence is in an emotional experience. 
There's no fruit in their life. And God's word shows us a genuine profession of faith results in a genuinely transformed life. This isn't like an optional add-on. Paul shows us this really clearly here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. He warns us. He's once again talking about this language. Who will enter the kingdom of heaven? He asks, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, do not be deceived. So he's warning against the wide path here. He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And listen to his language in verse 11. And he says, and such were some of you. Everybody say were. Is that present tense or past tense? That's who you were. That might have been who you were, but this is no longer who you are. You you no longer identify as this is what I am. You you no longer, you don't passively resign yourself to, well, this is just kind of my struggle. This is what I deal with. I'm I'm always going to deal with it. No, Paul says, and such were some of you. That might be who you used to be, but this is no longer who you are. He says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Listen, Paul's words here are not unclear, and they perfectly complement the words of Christ. If we live a life of unrepentant sin, this is evidence that we have not truly been converted, and we're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. He carries this out even more in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. He says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And here's the language again. For this is the will of God. What is the will of God? It's your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. And we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So so listen, Paul's so clear here. This perfectly complements what Jesus is saying. So clear here. It's not that we're never going to struggle with sin again. It's not that we're never going to stumble into sin again. It's not that we're, we're going to be, never be tempted by sin again. But the evidence that we, we are truly following Jesus is not just that we made a profession of faith and got emotional about it. The evidence that we are truly following Jesus is that we are carrying out and living a holy and transformed life in step with his word. Then we stumble into sin. We're not comfortable with it anymore. But we're not suppressing it. We're not minimizing it. We're not making excuse for it. We're submitting it all of it to the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ. It is the will of God that you not only look to Christ and be saved, it is also the will of God that as you are saved, you be sanctified. And this is the evidence of our salvation. This is the evidence that we've looked to Christ as when we're walking in holiness. So listen, it's no matter what we claim. If you conti- we continually commit sin with no remorse, with no regret, no desire to repent, then on the authority of God's word, it's evidence that we have made an empty profession of faith. Just because we profess faith doesn't mean that we possess faith. And those who are truly in the light will not walk in the dark. So Jesus warns against the empty profession of religious creeds. That's our first false assurance. Just thinking that we're in because we can get the answers right. But second, Jesus also shows us the empty performance of religious deeds. This can be a very false assurance. This can be a fool's gold if we're not careful. 
And Jesus warns us again, you can preach sermons and do exactly what I'm doing right now. You can perform miracles. You can cast out demons. You can do all of these things, do many mighty works. You can have the most impressive religious resume known to man. And listen, I just want to tell you, like, as a pastor, no words in the Bible are more sobering to me than the ones that I read here. I was working on this message primarily. It was the morning of January 7th, so a week ago yesterday. And I'd been reading this text the day before and had not been feeling well through the weekend, wasn't sleeping great. And the Lord woke me up around 2.45 last Saturday morning just with these words in my mind. And, and so I got up and I just started studying and I started really preparing this message and, and getting things ready to go. And I have to be transparent with you. There were multiple times preparing this message, just sitting at my desk. I just broke down and wept. Just broke down and wept because this passage warns against people like me. It can be so deceiving. It can be so deceiving. It's so humbling because the warning is just so heavy to think that I might stand. People like me are going to stand before Jesus one day. And this is going to be the response. Did I go to seminary in your name? Did I preach thousands of sermons in your names, countless hours studying word in your name? Did I plant a church in your name? Did we sing songs in your name? Did I do all this in your name? Did I not lead my people week in and week out for years? Psalm 45, I will cause your name to be remembered. And it's just so sober to be like, man, people just like me, we're, we're going we're to do all these things and we're going to miss it because ultimately we weren't doing it for him. We were doing it for ourselves. And it's so humbling just to consider this. It just multiple points just sat in sober reflection because what this passage shows us, you can make verbally an orthodox profession of faith. You, you can have all these mighty religious works to accompany that profession, and all of it, if you have actually just trusted in yourself and in your works and not in Jesus, all of it will only be good enough for him to look at you and say, depart from me, I never knew you. There are no more haunting words that we could ever imagine hearing. And on the day of judgment, this, this is what it's going to sound like for many professing Christians, what Jesus warns us of here. It's going to sound like this, Lord, did I go to church every Sunday in your name? and faithfully give money in your name, and sing songs in your name, and teach Sunday school in your name, and lead Bible study in your name, and go on mission trips in your name. Friends, it does not matter what you do in the name of Jesus if Jesus does not know your name. And this is his warning. To hear him say, depart from you, me, is the most terrifying moment we could ever imagine. In this moment, there is no court of higher appeal. We're not sending you back to the reception battalion to figure it out. That there's no one else, there's no greater authority, there's no last chance on the last day. If we have trusted in ourselves and we've not trusted in the Son, we will be justly cast into the lake of fire where we will perish for all eternity under the wrath of God. But these are not the words that we have to hear. These are not the words that we have to hear. If we look to the Son, if you look to the Savior, Jesus Christ, and you hang the eternal hopes of your soul, not on anything that you've done for him, but on everything he's done for you, you're not going to hear Matthew 7, 23. You're going to hear Matthew 25, 23. This is what we can be confident. If we've looked to the Son, this is what we can be confident in hearing one day. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. You do not have to hear, depart from me, worker of lawlessness. You can hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But our only hope of a job well done is the Savior who did the job well. 
When we stand before God in judgment, our our admission into heaven is not going to be granted by claiming and pointing to me, me, me. It's only going to be granted when we point to the Son at the right hand of the Father and say him, him, him. He's the only reason why I'm here. Our testimony, our story is that we were dead in our sins. And God rushed in and he performed divine CPR and he brought us to life. He rescued us from death. We're not those who, who, who show before the Lord our bill of good deeds and say, this is sufficient to pay the price of our sin. We point to Jesus and we say, no, he paid it all. Jesus paid it all, so all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed me white as snow. This is the profession of the true believer in Christ. Those who are truly in Christ have shredded their personal resume. We'll give our testimony of how we were crushed under the debt of sin and sing out how Jesus has paid it all. You know, just, just go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. It's the first words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Because here Jesus also addresses who is going to receive the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 3, the first words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And what's the promise to those who are poor in spirit? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know who the kingdom of heaven is for? It's for those who know they don't belong. It's for those who know their works could never be good enough, that they couldn't earn it, that they couldn't deserve it. And so there's this sense in which I believe, based on what we see in Matthew chapter five, that there's a sense in which the people who are most concerned about being the person in Matthew seven are probably the people who need to be the least concerned. Because Jesus shows us that the ones who are gonna enter the kingdom of heaven are the ones who are like, I absolutely do not belong here. The ones who are gonna be denied access to the kingdom of heaven are the ones saying, look at my good deeds, let me in on the basis of those good deeds. And so as we close together this morning, I wanna ask us two questions for reflection and response as, as we, we wrap up this time together. Two questions for us in light of the words of Jesus. The first question for you this morning is really simple. Do you know the Father's will? And are you doing the Father's will? Do you know the Father's will? Jesus says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of the Father. And you've heard it this morning. It is the Father's will for you to look to the Son and be saved. It is the Father's will for you to be sanctified and to live a holy life. It is the Father's will that all who belong to Christ will come to him, and everyone who comes to him will never be cast out. You don't have to live in the fear of hearing him say, depart from me. You can look forward in joy to hearing him say, well done. So I ask you again this morning, do you know the Father's will? And are you doing his will? And the second question for us this morning is not, do you know Jesus? The question that Jesus presents to us here is, do you know him? Does he know us? Not, do you know Jesus? The question is, does Jesus know you? And the sobering truth of this passage, it reveals that not all who claim to know Christ are known and claimed by Christ. It doesn't matter what we do in the name of Jesus if Jesus doesn't know our name. And so I'm just going to press this one more time this morning. I am not asking you, do you go to church a lot? Do you read your Bible? Is your doctrine in order? Is your theology sound? I'm asking, does Jesus Christ claim you as his own? You know, my in-law's house, they've got this print on their wall that always captures my attention anytime we visit. And as kids, we grow up learning to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. But this print that they have at their house, it doesn't say, Jesus loves me, this I know. It always captures my attention. It says, Jesus knows me, and this I love. Does he know you? 
The only thing better than knowing Jesus is being known by Jesus, and those who are known by him will know the eternal joy of being with him. And you can know that joy today. You can have that confidence today. So I ask you one more time, where is your confidence? Is your confidence in what you're doing for him? Is your confidence in your sincerity for him? Or is your confidence in what he's done for you? I can know, I can know that he knows me because I have looked to the Son. Because I've looked to the Son, that's evidence that the Father has given me to the Son. And because I've been given to him, I can come to him. And he promises when I come to him, he'll never cast me out. We're saved by his will, not ours. We're saved by his work, not ours. And because it's him, church, and not us, we can be confident of our standing in him on the last day. So, fathers, we, we close this time together this morning. I ask, Lord, that you would just bring us to a place of sober self-reflection and examination and help us to consider, Lord, where we have placed our trust. To who are we looking? Are we looking to ourselves to be justified or are we have wholly looked to your son, Jesus Christ? Lord, work in our hearts. Bring us under the authority of your word, even as it discomforts us and disquiets us today. Help us to surrender ourselves to your lordship and the authority of your word in our life. So as we close together this morning, listen, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you know, man, I have looked to the sun. I know there's nothing in, I know there's not enough in me. I know I can never save myself. I know I can never count my good works. Listen, if you've looked to the sun, then be confident. Be confident. And walk in the confidence of knowing him and, and walk by the strength of his spirit and, and the sanctification work that he's doing in your heart and in your life. But listen, if you're still trusting in yourself, if you really believe, like that's your play on the last day, you're just gonna be able to convince the Lord, you're gonna hoodwink him with your sincerity and good works. Listen, you should lack confidence because Jesus says it will never be enough. Have you hung the hopes of your soul on Jesus Christ and him alone? So I encourage you to keep your heads bowed with me for a moment. We're to come to the table for communion. Communion is where we look to the Son. We, we see him once again. We're reminded of what he did for us. We're reminded that it's absolutely not on the merit of our good works that we could be saved, but only on the merit of the good works that Christ has done for us. And we're reminded of that as we come to the table. And so if you profess to be a follower of Christ, is, is your profession of faith, is that accompanied by a holiness of life? Are you poor in spirit? Do you recognize that, that any good that you have only comes from Christ? Are you proud in spirit? Are you justifying yourself by your good works? And do you need to bring that to the Lord in confession and repentance today? And if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, the invitation to you today is so simple. It's look to the Son. Listen, you don't have to repeat a prayer. You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to fill out a card. These are all man-made things that are foreign to Scripture. Look to the Son. Look to the Son. Renounce your ability to save yourself. Turn from your sin. Put your faith in the perfectly finished work of Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his death, his resurrection. If you look to the Son, that means you belong to him and you live in the confidence of belonging to him as his child today. So Father, we thank you so much that you have sent your Son, Jesus, so that we could see him. Thank you for showing him to us today through your word. Thank you for showing us to him once again as we come to the table. As we come to you this morning in confession and repentance and rejoicing, 
Father, let it be of a heart of true worship. Let it be glorifying to you and pleasing to your ears from this place. We give this to you. We ask it all in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.